What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Maybe you've got a question that's been bothering you and you're not quite sure how to get that question answered. Well, we can help you with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Ethiopia, here's what you need to do. Dial the country code 1 and then 205 271 2985. You can always text us, uh, send us an email. The address for that, for the uh, email, that is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for the program. If you uh, want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming on both those great platforms right now. Just uh, put your question in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll send it to us here in Studio One, and off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. Going to lead off today with an interesting question we received uh, overnight on the EWTN listener comment line. Hi, this is Michael calling from Boston. I have a question for Dr. David Anders. Do uh, different people have different level of grace or, or receive different level of grace? Another way to put it is that, is it easier for some people to be saved and enter heaven or accept faith as opposed to some other people? Okay. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic faith teaches, and this is a dogma, that God offers sufficient grace to everyone that they might be saved. Okay. Right. Uh, It also teaches that our response to grace is itself graced so that our capacity to respond to God and his offer of grace is itself a work of God within us. So really, salvation is from grace to grace, start to finish. All of it involves God's uh, uh, coming before us, coming before our free human response, enabling that free human response, facilitating our free human response, and then increasing grace in response to our graced response to grace. It really is just just this great big plunge into a bathtub full of grace. Love it. With an extra suitcase of grace, right? (laughs) Um, It is also true that not everyone receives the same distribution of grace, if you will. Uh, The clearest example of this would be the incarnation, right? That the human nature of Christ also shares in the grace of God— Uh, The human soul of Christ is penetrated by the grace of God, but to an extent, to a degree that is unfathomable in comparison to any mere mortal that does not also possess a divine nature. In view of the hypostatic union, the human nature of Christ is graced to an extent that no human, mere human, would ever contemplate. Mm. Um, You know, a distant second would be the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, who is full of grace, kakaratamine, the only person about whom that, that, uh, that adjective can be applied. Uh, so she has the, the fullness of grace in a way that others don't, such that she was in, even preserved from original sin. 
um, John the Baptist was graced from his mother's womb, but not from the moment of conception, and so on and so on down the line. Uh, you know, all the way down to the, uh, you know, to the mobster who gets baptized, uh, you know, on his deathbed five minutes before he expires, right? And, uh, and so, you know, he's going to have, you know, it's going to be different, right? Different. Um, so, yeah, there are degrees of grace, uh, although everyone is offered sufficient grace in order to be saved. All right. And we thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Mike in North Carolina. He says, I often wonder why the church does not add to the Bible over time from its rich teachings. In particular, why are the epistles included in the Bible as inspired and useful for liturgy, but not the writings of Augustine, Aquinas, etc. The church draws on all these sources to accomplish its mission, so the distinction between the works in the Bible and all other authoritative writing sometimes seems arbitrary. Thanks, Mike in North Carolina. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So it is precisely because the church does not consider the church fathers to be inspired scripture that they are not included within the canon of the Bible. The doctrine of inspiration means... Uh, that the church teaches that these texts were produced under the direct inspiration of God such that they say everything and only that which God wanted said. And that's not, that's not true of the church fathers. However, you know, in quotes, inspired, we might consider them, maybe a better word would be inspiring, and of course this is an analogous use of the term, however edifying they might be, however helpful they might be, uh, they, are not, they are not the product of the Holy Spirit. Ah, uh, okay. Right? Um, they may be the product of a of a spirit filled individual, yeah. but whose whose writing is still subject to error, to uh, you know, to bias, to prejudice, to the kinds of things that would, uh, you know, relativize mm-hmm. uh, the the church fathers' pronouncements. Whereas Scripture itself is uh, a kind of you know bedrock fundamental given for Catholic identity in a way that the fathers are not. Although the fathers are authoritative and very important, extremely helpful, but they're not inspired Scripture. All right. And Mike in North Carolina, thanks for your question. Here's one now from Taylor. What is the difference between the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son and the begetting of the Son from the Father? Yes, thank you. So the the Church uses these terms, uh, spiration and begetting, Uh um, to describe the specific mode of procession that is is unique to that divine person. Hmm. And, And... the best that I can give you as an explanation was that since the second person stands in a filial relationship to the Father, that's, that's the best human analogy that we can, that we can give, uh-huh. the appropriate verb seems to be to beget okay. the only begotten. All right. Obviously, begetting in, within the divine trinity means something different from what it would mean for a human father to beget. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet begetting and filiation, fatherhood, sonship are still appropriate terms to use to describe that relationship. Um, you know, spiration is the technical term used for the procession of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that is a made-up word. That's a neologism that theologians invented to mean specifically the mode of procession peculiar to the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, um, the Holy Spirit is not the breath of God. God does not have lungs. God does not inhale. God does not exhale. But if you were going to draw a metaphor... Merely a metaphor, a very weak metaphor. Breath would be the metaphor. That's best we can do. All right, uh, Taylor, thanks so much uh, for your email. Hey, we've got wide open phones at this hour, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. 
Glad you're with us for the Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a second here. Let me tell you about a new book right now that's available from EWTN's religious catalog. It's called Beginning Well, Seven Spiritual Practices for the First Year of Almost Anything by Joel Stepanek. You know, the first year of almost anything new can be a both blessing and a challenge. Think about the first year of being married, the first year living in a new city or at a new job. Well, in this book, Beginning Well, Joel Stepanek, the vice president of parish services at Life Teen International, shows how being shaken out of your routine when you start something new can free you to become a better Christian. He offers seven spiritual practices to get you through transitions like this and help you lay a strong foundation for true happiness. Joel draws on his experience, personal faith, biblical narrative, and Catholic tradition to show you how to grow and thrive as you begin your next big thing. If this sounds like it might be something really great for somebody in your life, or maybe for maybe for you. Here's the book again, Beginning Well, Seven Spiritual Practices for the First Year of Almost Anything by Joel Stefanik. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. If you put Beginning Well in the search box, you'll get it. EWTNRC.com. We'll go to the phones in just a moment here. If you would like to grab a line, and there's one available for you at uh, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's a quick question from Blue watching us on YouTube this afternoon. He says, I've been I've been praying for something for 40 years. Should I give up? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So, I don't know, because I don't know what you've been praying for, right? I mean, like, if you've been praying 40 years that you'll win the lottery, yeah! Give it up. Give it up. It's not an appropriate object. It's not an appropriate object of desire. Um, St. Augustine says that every Christian prayer ought at some level to be reducible to the content of the the Lord's Prayer. Um, That's a prayer you should never give up. You should pray the Lord's Prayer every day of your life until you die. What are our aspirations there? Well, that God's kingdom be manifest in our lives. Sure. uh, That I be delivered from evil. uh, That God give me sufficient bread for this day, uh, both spiritual and material, um, that uh, that I forgive my enemies. I mean, these are aspirations that are perennial. Winning the lottery, not so much. I used to tell people that uh, I am praying for the 30-hour day, and I, I, I think those of us who have uh, time management challenges can uh, relate to that. However, the Lord has chosen not to answer that particular yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. And <laughs> Blue, thanks so much for checking in today on YouTube. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Thomas, just outside of Philadelphia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Thomas. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello, Tom and Dr. David Anders. Thank you for taking the call. Um, Real quick, I just wanted to ask a little bit about Islam, because in the past, it led me astray and really hurt my Christian faith. I Mm -hmm. At one point, believe their lies and everything. I've called before and asked about some other uh, subjects on it, but the legitimacy of the claim that Muhammad is a descendant of either Ishmael and Isaac or Isaac does that give any credibility to them? And why would God allow a false religion to be so prosperous? Like, 
I understand the like the problem of suffering and evil. Why would God allow this? But I don't see how God would allow a religion that's so contradictory to prosper and be so. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Appreciate the question. So, as far as Muhammad's genealogy is concerned, now that has absolutely no bearing whatsoever at all. I mean, I'm I'm a descendant of the prophet Adam. Mm. So are you, by the way. But the only thing I get out of that is original sin, right? You know, as well yeah. as some, as well. Thanks a lot, Adam. As well as a genome, you know, more more closer to hand. You know, I'm the I'm the son of Louis Anders, who was the son of Louis Anders, mm. and a grandfather and father with the same name. They were amazing men of great integrity and deep insight and wisdom. Wish that got passed down genetically, you know. Mm. So no, it has absolutely no bearing whatsoever at all on the question of religious authority. Um, the, uh, you know, the Hilaire Belloc once said that heresies survive because of the truth that they contain. Makes sense. Yeah. Right? That, that th- there has to be something about a religious tradition that seems compelling to its adherents that probably answers some particular existential concern that they have. Otherwise, it wouldn't prosper. It wouldn't thrive. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Islam definitely answers to some uh, felt spiritual needs. Um, you know, in particular, the, the need to settle the authority question when it comes to matters of social organization. I mean, uh-huh. Islam has an answer to that. I think it's not the right answer, uh, but it has an answer to that. And a great deal of the Quran is about social organization and, and public life and, it, you know, specifies a mode of being. I mean, the, the idea that we don't want to live in chaos, we want to have order. Um, and different religious traditions propose different ways of achieving that, either internally or externally speaks to a real felt spiritual need. Um, you know, Islam came uh, onto the scene in the Middle East at a time when um, the, the Christian church was broiled in controversy, and, and that has something to do with why Islam was successful. And the uh, the imperious and tyrannical government of the Byzantine Empire over its more far-flung colonies, especially those that were not co-religionists, the way the Byzantines, the Chalcedonians treated non-Chalcedonians in Egypt, for example, created an opening for Islam. And the Egyptian Christians wrongly felt that, well, you know, we didn't get such a good shake out of Byzantium. Maybe it'll be better under the Muslims. That that was turned out not to be the right decision, right? Yeah. But, I mean, there, it definitely had a you know window of opportunity there. And, um, and of course, there's a built-in strong disincentive for leaving the religion, namely, they kill you, right? So it has a, it has a way of retaining converts. That, I mean, we, don't, we don't issue the death penalty for people that walk away from the Catholic faith, you know, and, and so people do sometimes quite freely. And it's different if you live in a culture where, um, you know, you're going to lose your head if you try yeah. that. So, I mean, there, I think there, there are perfectly human reasons to explain uh, the material success of Islam over the centuries. And... and you know, there are lots of historical religions, many of them, and some of them are more successful than others. And I, I think we can generally look to the to the social context in which they find themselves to try to understand that. It doesn't necessarily convey some sort of uh, spiritual legitimacy. Thomas, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. It looks like two lines open right now, 833 833- 288-3986. Call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Ken, a first-time caller in Ohio, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Ken, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, hi. Um, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time. My background is in the evangelical uh, world. Um, however, I have a lot of, um, you know, I feel drawn to the Catholic faith as well. But my, here's my, my problem. I, 
I have a strong faith in, in God uh, and in Christ, but my problem is with the Church, whether that's Protestant or Catholic. When I look historically at all the horrific things that the Churches have sponsored, uh, everything from the Inquisition to the Crusades to all the violence that the Protestant Reformation uh, was engaged in. So my question, Dr. Enders, is how can one who strongly believes in Christ, loves the Lord, um, how can one be a part of the Church when you feel such discomfort with some of the history that the Church has been involved in? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, to begin with, if if my involvement in the Church were predicated on finding a corner of the Church that was free from corruption— I could only do that by removing myself from the church because I myself am not free from corruption. Any place I am, corruption is, <laughs> right? Um, and that we all have that problem. But St. Augustine wrote that God gave us the church so that we would have people to do good to. And the church is a kind of family. That's one metaphor for it. It's a society. It's the body of the Christian faithful. Of, of people that are committed to the project of imitating Christ and trying to be salt and light in the world uh, through helping one another. And that that is realized, that aspiration, that ideal is in fact realized empirically, regardless of the bad decisions of some of its members. I mean, I as a Catholic person, I mean, like I'm sitting right across the table right now from an exemplary Catholic. I just think the world of Tom Price his moral example, the way he lives his faith, is, uh, is, is inspiring to me. I, I want to imitate his virtues. I appreciate his friendship and his prayers. And, and I'm, I'm lucky that I have a lot of Tom-like people in my life, Catholic folks that I associate with. Some of them are clergy, some religious, um, some lay, and, uh, and, and they manifest that to me. You know? And I, personally, as a Catholic, I have never needed for everyone in my congregation to be a saint in order for me to be edified and grow in my relationship with God. Really, I need just a handful of people, sometimes just one Catholic mentor. And in my relationship with clergy, that seems to have been the pattern. At every stage of my Catholic life, there has been one priest, one, usually just one, one priest in my life who has been pastorally present to my family uh, and exemplified the love of Christ to me, while there have been many others that failed to do that. Mm. And some of them set a bad example and scandalized us. But there's always been that one priest, you know, and, and some of them have been diocesan priests. Some of them have been religious clergy. Some of mm -hmm. them have been Americans. Some of them have been foreigners. Uh -huh. uh, the one common denominator, some of them have been geniuses. Some of them have been, you know, sort of average Joes. The common denominator was that they decided that they would be Christ to my family. I don't need a lot of that. I just need one of them. Just one at a given time. I don't need a. I don't need everyone in my Catholic life to be perfect. I just need a handful of friends that are committed to the project of living the Catholic faith with integrity, and that is sufficient for me to realize the goods of the Church. And of course, the sacraments can come through the hands of a, of a corrupt and immoral priest, as well as the hands of a of a worthy one. I'd rather have them from a worthy priest. Sure. And I have been known to, you know, change parishes or seek out masses or whatnot, or go to confessions based on that judgment. But in a pinch, you know, I mean, I've uh, I've been to some pretty sketchy liturgies, <laughs> you know, because I'd get the sacraments even from the sketch. Of course. Um, and, and I think that's the way you conceptualize it. You know, I said, I think yesterday on the show, somebody called in with this similar problem. And I said, well, if I wonder, I think if you have that as a criterion for association, you really would have to separate yourself from Christ and the apostles. Because five out of the 12 apostles that we know of, possibly higher, 
but at least five of the 12 were up to some pretty bad stuff during yeah. their apostolic ministry. And yet, it, in spite of that, they were able to minister the Word of God to people, and the church could grow, and widows and orphans could be cared for, and people could come to holiness and edification in spite of the failings of, uh, of the clergy. Ken, a great call. Thanks so much for checking in from Ohio. It's called a communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Janelle is a first-time caller in Arizona, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey there, Janelle. What's, uh, Janelle, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Um, I just had a quick question. Um, I, I, I felt a two-part question. You said I could ask um, both. Um, but rejecting penal substitutionary atonement, um, I'm, a, I'm a Protestant in RCIA right now, and realizing that penal substitutionary atonement was not accurate was one of the things that... Church? I'm struggling with explaining... We're starting to you we're starting to lose your connection. Are you are you mobile? Can you hear me now? Now I hear you. now I hear you. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Okay, yeah. Um I'm not sure how much you heard, but um I'm a Protestant, um, converting to Catholicism in IRCIA right now. Yep. Um and one of the things that most drew me to the Catholic Church was realizing that penal substitutionary atonement was not accurate. Yep. Um, but as I'm interacting with um, my Protestant friends and family members, I'm struggling with how to combat um, the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53, no where problems. it seems to vary. Okay, you ready? Yeah, I'm totally about that. And what was the so, other? What, what was the other thing, real quickly? It, it's a little bit related. It's a question about um, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Ooh, and yeah. Whether I know that I figured you would like that, but it's about whether I'm just in when I watched that. Um, after hearing about how penal substitutionary atonement is not accurate, I wondered if it is a good analogy to explain to my Protestant friends that, like, when you are following that, you're kind of making God the white witch, you know, when she's like, I demand blood, I must have blood. And I was just kind of curious if that is, like, an accurate thing to kind of help them understand that, you're not making God the good guy when you do that. Um, so I just wanted your thoughts on that, if that was something that would be helpful, maybe. To yeah, share. thanks. I really appreciate the question. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, with respect to Isaiah 53, I mean, the text, if you take it very seriously and you look at what it has to say, it, it, it offers no challenge whatsoever all to the Catholic doctrine of the Atonement, and it does not teach the Calvinist doctrine. What does it say? Uh, f- verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we did not esteem him, stricken, excuse me, yet we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Notice what he says. We esteemed him. We regarded him as smitten by God and afflicted. That is exactly how Jesus' contemporaries regarded him. They thought that the ignominy of the cross indicated God's rejection. His, his dying in this, in this very ignominious way. Uh-huh meant he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. That's the way the Jews interpreted it. And yet, what does the, the prophet go on to say? He goes on to say, Yet it pleased the Lord to put him to grief, and his, and, 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 but to later cause him to prosper in his hand. I'm reading from Isaiah right yeah, now. Yeah. All right. 
though the human population regarded Christ's affliction as a sign of divine rejection, the truth was it was a, desi- it was a sign of desi- divine favor. Isaiah 53 does not say that God imputed our sins to Jesus and he was punished by God on our behalf. It does not say that. Okay. Right. It does say he entered into our condition. Now, I can talk more about this after the break. Sit tight there, Janelle. We'll continue on the other side here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Stay with us. It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. We do have a couple of lines open. Uh, you can uh, grab one by going to 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before the break, we were talking with Janelle in Arizona, who is uh, examining the Catholic Church right now. And, and one thing that was uh, uh, very high on on her hit parade was Isaiah 53 and the whole penal substitution thing. And uh, she was wondering about that. She also had some concerns or or wanting to know about uh, C.S. Lewis and something very close to your heart. Yeah, thanks. So before the break, I explained that uh, Isaiah does not teach the Calvinist doctrine of the Atonement. He does not say that God imputed the sins of humanity to Christ and the righteousness of Christ to humanity such that we can be saved by faith alone. He does not teach that. He does teach that the, that the servant of God entered into the experience of human suffering, that he fully identified, entered into solidarity with us in our suffering, and that Jesus' contemporaries regarded him as being cut off from God in consequence, but that in fact he was not cut off from God, he was not alienated, and God was pleased with him and rewarded him. That's that's what the prophet says. So okay. it does not conform to the Calvinist view at all, even though it is cited as an authority by Calvinists. Okay. The second question was, in dialoguing with evangelicals, would I would I refer to C.S. Lewis's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to give an alternative understanding of the nature of the atonement? Absolutely, yes. And at, not because I think Lewis is the finest uh, statement of the doctrine of the atonement, but it's one that, f- for whatever reason, many uh, evangelicals unthinkingly regard as authoritative. Like huh. Lewis has a place in the evangelical imagination that's different than in the Catholic imagination. Yeah. He, he really is one of their key modern figures. I mean, when I was at Wheaton College in Illinois, which is, you know, flagship evangelical school, Billy Graham went there, they have the Billy Graham Evangelistic, you know, museum there on the campus. I used to, that's where I asked my wife to marry me. It was in the chapel of the Billy Graham Center at wow. Wheaton College. Wow. Um, they house uh, the Wade Center in their library, which is a, a collection of Lewis memorabilia. It's the biggest collection of Lewis memorabilia outside of England. And uh, Anthony Hopkins, when he played Lewis in the Shadowlands, did research there. Uh, at huh. uh, at Wheaton College because they have such a great collection of uh, Lewisania. Wow! And uh, and we used to jokingly say that C.S. Lewis was the patron saint of Wheaton College. Right? <laughs> um, but uh, yes, yeah, so they really love Lewis. Odd because Lewis was not an evangelical, not by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. And the doctrine of the atonement that he presents there, and also in his book Mere Christianity, mm-hmm. has nothing in common with Calvinism of the doctrine of penal substitution. It's in fact the classic patristic doctrine of Christus Victor, or the idea that by his death Christ conquered death, hell, Satan, and the devil, and descended into hell, and harrow- the harrowing of hell, and the release of the prisoners from the limbus of the fathers, and all that, that's packed into that doctrine of the atonement. And you're right that on the evangelical model, if you were to allegorize it to, to the Lion, the Witch, and the Rojo, but we, the White Witch who would be playing the place of God, right? And the, the, that's the fundamental problem with Calvinism, or one of them, is it, it implicates God in injustice. I mean, in so many ways. So Calvin's God punishes the innocent in order to acquit the guilty. 
Excuse me. Yeah, I got that right. He punishes the innocent in order to acquit the guilty. That is the Calvinist doctrine of the atonement. And of course, Calvinism is worse than that, because not only does he do that, but he also makes it possible only for the elect to be saved. So the doctrine of limited atonement. Um, and, uh, and the saved are irresistibly saved, meaning they have no cooperation in the matter whatsoever at all. So on Calvin's view, God creates the vast majority of the human race for the explicit purpose of sending them to hell, um, and does so by imputing the sins of of sinners to a righteous person who is then punished on their behalf, which, I mean, if a human judge did that, you'd call that unjust. Yeah. Right? And Calvin and Luther both understood that their doctrine had the appearance of injustice, and their response was to throw up their hands and say, well, he's God, how can you talk back to God? His, his justice is higher than our justice, his righteousness is higher than our conceptions, which is just to, you know, which is to go full-on irrational. I just, and Luther did this explicitly. He said, you know, reason is a whore and the, the greatest enemy of faith. It's, it's to suggest that our, our intrinsic humanity and our rationality play no role in, uh, in fact, a negative role in, uh, in coming to an understanding of God and our salvation. It's, so it's to, it's to ask people to embrace absurdity at the heart of their religious life. Uh, Janelle, is that helpful for you? Yeah, no, that was great. I just, the, the, the part of the suffering servant passage that like really is hard for me and that just in interacting with particularly one friend who kind of is like open to the Catholic view of it, but she keeps coming back to that verse that says, I think it's verse five that says like the punishment he bore. So it uses punishment. Yeah, but who punished him? Uh, was it, it was so, okay. Yes, but who's punishing Jesus? It would be the authority, the earth. Of course, authority. of course. The Romans punished him. The Jews punished him. We punished him. Yeah. And we regarded. The text says that that punishment was regarded by Jesus's contemporaries as having been meted out by God, but that judgment is incorrect. It was not, in fact, God's will to punish Jesus directly for sins that Jesus did not commit. So this is this is typical of Protestant exegesis. They, they have a metaphysical doctrine, and they, they then go poking around the Bible trying to find proof texts to support it. <laughs> and so they bend the scriptures. They take, you know, something that seems to be analogous, yeah. but they bend it beyond what the text actually says and go, oh, this proves my doctrine. Another example would be the way they handle 2 Corinthians 5, which has nothing to do with the atonement but they try to bend it to make it about the atonement. Great call, Janelle. Thanks so much for checking in from Arizona. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Congratulations going out to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. That would be Spirit Catholic Radio. They are based in Omaha, celebrating a whopping 25 years with us, with now 15 stations serving basically all of Nebraska, plus one station serving Boyd, Wisconsin. How about that? Congratulations to our friend Jim Carroll and everybody at Spirit Catholic Radio from your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now for Josh in Vancouver, Washington, listening on the great Modern Day Radio. Hey, Josh, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I'd like to know if Catholic theology embraces the uh, the the Council of Chalcedon uh, to bring an understanding of the God-Man. Yeah, thanks. We, we don't only embrace Chalcedon, we produced it, <laughs> right? Chalcedon is a Catholic council, so a Catholic yeah. ecumenical council that was, that was conducted under the authority of the Pope and, and, uh, and, and his magisterium. And in fact, the, 
the Christology that was pronounced at Chalcedon was drawn directly from Leo's tome. Pope Leo uh, had composed a statement on Christology that became the basis of the Chalcedonian definition. Okay. Appreciate your call there, Josh, from Vancouver. Let's go now to Tom in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thank you. Um, So uh, about a month ago, maybe a little more, um, someone had asked Dr. Anders about whether God loves us all the same, um, I think it was a lady who said that a Protestant community she belonged to uses that formulation. Um, and I have been using a... Oh, oh and, and Dr. Andrew's response was to talk about St. Therese of Lisieux and sort of the swimming pools and the thimbles full of water, everybody's full. I have a formulation that I use during marriage prep, prep when my wife and I teach, and the last thing I want is to be wrong, so I just want to make sure this is not inaccurate to say. Okay, the formulation I used is that God's love is not divisible, it is not apportioned into percentages, it's not as if God loves, you know, me 30% less than he loves St. Therese of Lisieux or something like that. Um, uh, Also, John Paul's formulation or explanation that we are all subjects to God, we're not objects, meaning none of us um, is used by God to our detriment uh, and to the benefit of someone else. So what I I tell them is that I, I believe if we're all subjects to God, that God loves us, each of us, as much as he loves all of us combined. And I want to make sure that's not inaccurate to say. Thank you. Right. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, when when we're predicating of God, we're we're babbling, right? I mean, we don't know what we're talking about. That that is actually a Catholic doctrine, that we can't speak about God univocally. Uh, Everything we say is is kind of an analogy. Mm -hmm. And that means that you know, there's going to be some squishiness around our language about God. Um, the danger comes in if we take that language too literally and we start impressing onto our concept of God things that, that can't possibly be true and that lead us into error. And uh, so, you know, some of the errors that we would want uh, to avoid would be if I say, well, you know, God loves me everybody as much as he loves Mother Teresa, so I'm just fine the way I am. He loves me just as much as Mother Teresa. She was, you know, called to take care of beggars, and, you know, maybe I'm called to play Xbox, you know. <laughs> and that, that kind of attitude could leave a person complacent about their spiritual life, mm. right? Um, I, I, like, uh, I like your image that God's love is not divisible, because that's true, of course. God, love is not a quantity in God. Um, God himself is not divisible. God has no parts. A metaphor that is often used in Catholic theology and philosophy about God would be to compare God to the light of the sun. Mm. And, um, you know, if we all step outside into the light of the sun, I mean, like, you know, I guess if I, if I have more surface area than Tom, you know, if I put on a lot of weight, maybe I can soak up some more, you know. But <laughs> basically, we're all exposed to the same quantity of sunlight. Um, but, but here's the difference. Our capacity for absorption does differ, Right. Um, and, uh, and so, for example, the guy who steps out into the sun with a parasol, you know, an umbrella over his head, yeah. is not going to pick up the same amount of sunlight, you know, as somebody else is, you know, out there wearing his little Speedo bathing suit, you know, covered in, in uh, you know, sun enhancer or SPF whatever. SPF 2. You know, exactly, right, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and so people's capacity for grace is not equal. And some of that capacity is due to things beyond their control. So the Blessed Virgin Mary had a greater capacity for grace than I do. And it wasn't because 
God anticipated her righteousness and rewarded her accordingly. Hmm. It was because God determined from all eternity that he would create a creature who had who 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 singularly had a greater capacity for grace than anyone else. That was God's determination, not Mary's. And uh, and so there is there is inequity in the distribution of grace that has to do with our subjective capacity to absorb that grace even though God himself is indivisible. Tom, thanks so much for your call. It's called a communion here on EWTN, one of the great weekend programs that we bring you each and every Saturday at noon Eastern is Women of Women Made New with Kristalina Everett. She always comes up with fantastic interviews. She's right on the money and uh, has something to say to all kinds of women. Check it out, Saturday, noon Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Women Made New with Kristalina Everett. I'll carry it on most of our EWTN radio stations. All right, let's go to uh, Aaron now, a first-time caller in Dawsonville, Georgia, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey there, Aaron, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, uh, I was just calling because I'm in RCIA, and my family and most of my friends are pretty anti-Catholic, so I've had to become pretty well read up on my apologetics. And one argument I've been getting frequently is that we have no need for the priesthood anymore because of the priesthood of all believers, and when Jesus said it is finished and died, the temple veil was torn in two, supposedly signifying the end of the formal priesthood. And I can see how somebody might glean that interpretation from the passage, because as a former Protestant, that was also my belief. But uh, I obviously don't hold to it any longer. But the, the scriptures don't really seem explicit on what the significance of the tearing of the veil meant, and I don't really understand enough about what it means to dispute it properly. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So the book of Hebrews explains the tearing of the temple veil. And what the book of Hebrews says is that the Levitical priesthood and the system of Old Testament sacrifices is no longer necessary to bring to come into God's presence. And so the, the destruction of that temple veil means no more Levitical priesthood necessary. That's right? it. And that's yeah. the Catholic doctrine. Yeah, we don't have Levitical priests, and we don't offer animal sacrifices. Period, end of paragraph. Um, but that there remains um, an office of priest and a distinction of clergy and laity is also biblical teaching. So, um, you know, Acts chapter 14, we learn that, that the apostles, um, Paul and Barnabas, appointed uh, presbyters, that is to say priests, in each of the communities that they founded. And, of course, uh, the pastoral epistles describe that office, you know, Paul, uh, including its succession. <clears throat> Paul says to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might appoint presbyters. So that's the role of a bishop, of course. In each town, as I directed you, um, they have the charge of uh, teaching sound doctrine, refuting opponents, um, and, uh, and, and putting into practice and entrusting to the people the deposit of faith received from St. Paul. So Titus chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, that there is a sacrificial nature to the New Testament priesthood is evident in a number of places. One of them would be St. Paul uh, in Romans chapter 15, he refers to his own office as a priest. Um, he, God gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Interesting here, the offering that Paul is giving to God is, in fact, Gentile Christians. He, he's gathering them up as a sacrifice and presenting them to God. That's his priestly role. That's what he says in Romans yeah. chapter 15. Yeah. And, of course, Christians themselves, are to have a, they do have a priestly character, and they offer the sacrifice of, of their of their bodies, Paul tells in Romans chapter 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
Um, and so um, th- there is a priestly function of the people of God, and that includes designated officers to, to whom we have the, uh, the duty to obey. And, of course, they preside over the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, and uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 uh, clearly describes that in sacrificial terms. So there's a, there's a sacrificial element to the Eucharistic liturgy. Um, and from the earliest times, the, the liturgy is not something that's, ha- hap- that's handled democratically. St. Justin Martyr, uh, in, uh, in, what is it, chapter 66 or 67 of his first apology, this is mid-2nd century, speaks about the one who presides over the liturgy. That's a priest, of course, and, yeah. and how that's affected. Ignatius of Antioch, who's one of our earliest Christian writers outside the New Testament, explicitly connects the Eucharist to the authority of priest and bishop, um, and to this promise of succession that, you know, if you receive one sent from the Lord, it's though you receive the Lord himself, and no Eucharist is valid except that authorized by the bishop who has apostolic succession, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, there you have it. Now, you know, the, the, our connection to the ministerial priesthood is they affect the sacraments, and they should model the Christian life and, and govern the church with justice. But it's so that they can help us realize our own priesthood. I mean, the, the, the ministerial priesthood is not in competition with the priesthood of all believers, the priesthood of the faithful, the baptismal priesthood. We're all meant to live sacrificial lives in imitation of Christ, and the liturgy of the Eucharist uh, expresses, exemplifies, and affects the priestly character of our lives. Aaron, thanks so much for your call. Just uh, today I encountered someone who referred to themselves as a lay priest. Have you ever heard that term? That is like a cat dog. A cat dog. (laughs) I like the cat dog. That's kind of an oxymoron, I think. I, I think you're right. Let's go to uh, Peter. Peter's a first-time caller from Nova Scotia, listing on YouTube this afternoon. Hey, Peter, what's on your mind today? Uh, hi, Dr. Andrews. Hi. Uh, I'm just, uh, I was uh, talking to your <laughs> screener about uh, confirmation, and uh, he was mentioning that it was uh, uh, making you a, uh, what do you call a warrior. My father called it a soldier, good soldier. Anyway, uh, I, I was just wondering about. Like, I was wondering about the. I, I understood the giving of the Holy Spirit was then confirmation. Yes, that's correct. But, yeah, but then uh, when he when I went to the back of the church, I, he, uh, my father asked me, "What did he do?" I said, "Nothing," because yeah, uh, I felt uh, I thought I was supposed to feel something, right? Oh, thank you. That's a great <laughs> qualification. No, no, absolutely, you should feel nothing. Like, normatively, you shouldn't expect to feel anything. No electric charge and, or and, anything uh, like this that. Is a, this is a gross misunderstanding of the nature of the Spirit's ministry and the nature of the sacraments. I often hear Catholics talk about how wonderful they felt after they received Holy Communion or after they got confirmed or after some sacrament, you know, confession or whatever. And that's great. That's all fine. I'm glad they felt wonderful. But the feeling wonderful has absolutely nothing to do with the efficacy of the sacraments. Yeah. And it's just as intelligible and perhaps maybe more beneficial for the Catholic to go to the sacraments and walk away and say, I felt nothing. Right? The reason that's more beneficial is that, that if you think that the purpose of the sacrament is to convey a kind of uh, effective response, mm-hmm. then you really misconstrue the way they're effective, the way they're supposed to work in you. The sacraments have their efficacy in us ex- exclusively through our psychology and particularly our cognition. Right? Not, our, not our passions, not our felt uh, experience, but our, but our cognitive attitudes, the okay. ideas that we hold in our mind. And the way the sacraments work is each of the sacraments represents, it symbolizes. Now, don't, don't get worried, you, you Catholics out there. I didn't say it was only a symbol, okay? But it does, if you symbols. 
it symbolizes a spiritual reality that's meant to be realized in our life. And so in baptism, of course, what's symbolized is that we die to ourselves and rise with Jesus, uh, that we're cleansed of original sin and actual sin, live lives of purity. Um, and, uh, and of course, in confession, what's symbolized is our contrition and our reconciliation with God. Uh, in the Eucharist, what's symbolized is the, the life of sacrifice that we're to, li- to lead and also our close union with Christ, that he's, phys- he, he's bodily present to us. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, the, the sacraments through the Holy Spirit make those things realities. But the way they affect us, the way they move us to life of charity, to the life of virtue, is specifically by helping us to conceptualize, that's a cognitive change, what it is that's being symbolized. And so if I contemplate my baptism, for example, that's the reason you have a sign, so uh-huh. it can be brought to mind. If I contemplate my baptism, I am, I am aware of the fact that dying and rising with Christ should be the pattern of my life. It's something the Holy Spirit has energized within me, has made possible for me, but, but only through my own cooperation, which, of course, begins in my cognition, to have the idea, I want to live a holy life, right? With confirmation, what's symbolized is the empowering of the Holy Spirit for witness. That's the specific nature of the Holy Spirit's gift, that I can be a witness for Christ in the world, just as the apostles were, and go out there and share Christ by my life, which might include my martyrdom, right? Knowing that that's what's conveyed to me, again, that's the cognitive domain, uh-huh. then I purpose to put that into practice. And, and sometimes the best way to do that is when I have absolutely no emotional affect at all, mm. right? So that, that's actually the real sign of holiness. It's one thing to get up and go to Mass when you have, like, all those new Catholic, you know, happy juices. Uh-huh. It becomes much harder, you know, like right around year 20, Mm. <laughs> you know, when it's like the same old thing again. Yeah. And now I feel nothing, right? Can I do the right thing when I feel nothing? That's why I, I honestly think it's almost better sometimes if the first time you go to the sacraments, you feel nothing because it's what you purpose to do sure. that is the most important. Peter, thanks so much for your call from Nova Scotia. Glad to hear from you today. Uh, John's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. What is the difference between eternal and everlasting? Yes, so eternal means that there is no temporal duration. Okay. And everlasting means that you do have a succession of temporal moments. Okay. And, uh, and so our experience of the next <clears throat> life is technically not eternal. God only experiences eternity. Mm. Humans have everlasting life. God has eternal life. They're not the same. Thanks for the distinction there. Here's one now from Bain watching us on YouTube today. What can I say to a Protestant friend who doesn't understand the need for confession? Any church history you can quote would be appreciated. Um, Yeah, thanks. So how about uh, St. James who says, confess your sins to one another that you can be healed? How about the fact that Scripture specifically enjoins confession upon us? Yeah. And, and, you know, when uh, Jesus' parable of 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 the Pharisee and the publican, and the Pharisee confesses that he's all right, and the publican says, you know, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Christ says it's the latter rather than the former that goes home justified. So we have to make, we have to repent of our sins. That's sort of ground zero for the gospel. I mean, John the Baptist and Jesus both repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You have to change your mode of life. You have to recognize that you've done wrong, make a decision to turn right. Uh, and scripture tells us that we have to articulate that to other people. But that's part of the that's part of the program. Uh-huh. Now here's where I'll grant some concession to you. 
historically that that public excuse me that private confession of sin to another has not always been the context in which the church's power to absolve sins was exercised so in antiquity Christ see, gave the church the power to forgive sins he said whoever sins you forgive are forgiven that power to forgive sins was typically exercised in a public context okay um in the Middle Ages, the church switched, and now, and this is just a pastoral decision, began to exercise that within the context of the private confessional. So that's a convention of church law. But it's it's dispensable under certain circumstances. So, for example, if you're in an airplane, airplane starts going down, and you don't have time to make a private confession, a priest could hop up and grant general absolution to the entire airplane. Okay. Um, let's hope we know that never happens. Let's hope. Right? Uh, so you have to separate confession on the one hand, which is mandatory, and absolution, which is a power absolute given to the church. The church brings those together for pastoral reasons. And finally, this question from Losefo, watching us on YouTube in New Zealand this morning. He says, good morning, Dr. Andrews. What is the church's stance on having children out of wedlock? Well, it's not good for the children. It's not good for the parents. Yeah. Right. I mean, the children are still human beings with dignity, and they deserve the sacraments and love and nurture and shouldn't be discriminated against. There's something that's not their fault. But the parents do them a disservice. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad we could get that one in. Uh, Losefo, thanks for watching us today on YouTube there in uh, New Zealand. Love to hear from people really all over the world. That's why EWTN is well known from here to ever, you know, from here to the moon. It's known as the Global Catholic Network. And that's a, a great responsibility that we don't take lightly at all. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you. We do this program for all of our listeners all over the world, Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also check out the podcast whenever you wish by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Once you're there, click on the words Podcast Central. Then once you're there, just uh, scroll down a little bit. You'll see Call to Communion, and you are good to go. On behalf of our fantastic team here, Rich, Charles, and Matt, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us today. See you tomorrow right here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and this program, Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Have a great day. We'll see you next time. God bless. God bless.